Welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. This is Jamie Weinstein. My guest today is Robbie George. Robbie George is the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals Institutions at Princeton University. He has won too many honors and served on too many prestigious commissions to mention here. Suffice it to say, he is one of the country's leading academics of any ideology and on a short list of maybe two for the most famous conservative college professors on campus today. So it was an honor to have him on this program. We discussed many issues, including and most obviously what is going on on college campuses today, what he thought of the statements of the three presidents of major elite universities before Congress, what he would do uh, if he was president of Princeton University and faced with those same questions, and a little bit about the just broader national political moment we are in. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Without further ado, I give you Professor Robbie George. Professor Robbie George, welcome to the Dispatch Podcast. Thank you, Jamie. It's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me on. Well, it's a real honor to have you on. Um, and uh, I want to start here, actually. Uh, and, I, and I'm kind of interested in what your response would be as both someone who is a staunch advocate for free speech and someone who has been a strong uh, a, a fighter against anti-Semitism. I, I want to imagine for a moment you are uh, Princeton President Robbie <laughs> George, and you are sitting uh, in a House hearing room earlier this month, and you were asked uh, a very broad and, and general question, which was, uh, does calling for uh, the genocide of Jews constitute bullying and harassment? How would President Princeton President Robbie George respond? Our university has very strong policies against uh, harassment, intimidation, and threats. Uh, those coexist with our very strong uh, free speech commitments. Those free speech commitments track the obligations that uh, state institutions would have under the First Amendment. Now, the free speech protection means we cannot ban any idea, no matter how vile, no matter how gross, no matter how horrible. But where the expression of an idea amounts to harassment or intimidation or genuine threats, we will punish those. Now, I have to admit, I'm now in the role of a university president, right, of, uh, of uh, let's say, Penn or Harvard. I would then say, Representative Stefanik, I have to admit, that my institution, the institution I now have the honor of leading, has not always been faithful to its free speech commitments. And when I invoke now free speech protections, even for people who express anti-Semitic sentiments, you may be thinking, well, that's awfully hypocritical because you've come down very hard not respecting free speech on people who have made statements that deviate from woke orthodoxies on campus. And Representative Stefanik, I have to plead guilty on behalf of my, my institution. We have done that in the past, but I pledge to you, I'm a new president, just in office a few months, I pledge to you that you will not see that hypocrisy going forward. We will prevent harassment and intimidation of Jewish and all students, but we will also respect free speech for everybody. And that includes conservatives, that includes uh, evangelical Christians and devout Catholics, Orthodox Jews. Anyone uh, who expresses any view on campus will get equal free speech protection. 
Can, can I press you on on that a little bit, Professor? You, you know what what is interesting is, and I think you express what a lot of conservatives uh, were most upset about is that you know uh, in the past uh, this idea of free speech was not usually invoked <laughs> when uh, a, a subject comes up, and all of a sudden uh, we saw three staunch free speech defenders uh, in front of uh, uh, Congress when asked about. Uh, issues that related to harassment of, of Jews. Yeah, when it was anti-Semitic free speech, anti-Semitic <laughs> speech, everything suddenly seemed to change. And of course, that looked hypocritical, and it looked hypocritical, Jamie, because it was hypocritical. Yeah, but I wonder, even if you are a staunch supporter of free speech, you know, there there are questions of you know people trying to parse from you know from the river to the sea, uh, you know, you know some. I guess can argue that it's not genocide. A lot of people like me think that that that's what it means. But if something is so specific, if someone was on campus actually saying, you know what, I do support the genocide of Jews. I do support uh, the murder of all black people. I do support uh, the murder of all Catholics. Is that something that you think the university should say, even if they are for free speech? That does seem oddly very specific and very, very clear of what they're what they're calling for. And it being something that should be against. In the hypothetical case you're giving me, giving me uh, it is abstract advocacy. That is, it's not uh, getting in someone's face and saying, let's say to a black person, we should kill all blacks, where it becomes an actual intimidation. We're in a classroom discussion and some misguided, deeply immoral person uh, says something like, uh, you know, you know Hitler's uh, Hitler's policies were uh, were pretty tough, but uh, you know the Jews were a real problem, and he needed to get rid of them if he if Germany was to make progress. If, let's say a student says something that vile, but in the context of abstract ad- advocacy and discussion, not where it can be interpreted as an actual threat against an individual. Is that the hypothetical we're in? Yeah, I guess I guess there's not saying I'm going to go participate in the genocide, but you know I support uh, the the idea of a genocide. Believe me, you would not want a university to have the power. You would not want an official in a university. You saw those presidents. You know who the people are who run universities. You would not want a university official to be able to make the judgment that this or that constitutes um, uh, an illegal call for genocide, illegal under the university's rules that can then be um, investigated and punished. I, I don't know the college official that I would trust with that power. And of course, if you, if you tried to, if a university tried to um, make such speech uh, uh, punishable, what would happen is people would not say outright, you know, kill the Catholics or gas the Jews or, you know, eliminate the blacks. They would say things like, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be Arab or something like that. And then there will be some university official might be the head of the DEI office. It might be the dean of undergraduate student life. It might be the provost. It might be the university president who's going to have to decide whether that constitutes speech that is uh, punishable. And when you do that, again, believe me, I'm, I'm right in the belly of the beast. I've been at this 39 years in the heart of the Ivy League. Here's what would come next. Someone saying, you know what? These civilian casualties are horrible, but Israel's got to do what it's got to do to defend its own people. And so, you know, we're just not going to, we can't be deterred by the deaths of Palestinian babies and Palestinian civilians. 
And then that person is targeted and punished for genocidal speech or for hate speech or for biased speech or something like that. You do not want to empower these people to do that. Well, let's let's get to what is going on on campuses. And, and you tweeted a poll that kind of was stunning to me. Um, I had seen it before. Uh, the poll was of 18 to 24-year-olds, which showed uh, that 79% support an ideology that says white people are oppressors, 69% support an ideology that says Jews are oppressors, and 60% believe that the October 7th massacre of Jews in Israel was justified. Uh, and you wrote above the poll, gee, I wonder where they are getting these ideas. Who's stuffing their heads full of this stuff? Such a mystery. Uh, for those who are not on campus, uh, who may be a little bit uh, surprised, and, and and it is a mystery to them, um, explain what you meant. Wh- where are these ideas coming from? Well, if you look at um, uh, the ideology that you find in the writings of figures from Franz Fanon, I don't know if that name means anything to you to Jamie, but he's an important influence on contemporary academic life. Or Herbert Marcuse, uh, the um, uh, left-wing uh, guru uh, who taught here in the United States, emigrated from Germany, taught in the United States in the 1960s and 70s. Uh, these ideas that uh, the world is divided up into oppressors and uh, the oppressed, and you're either in one category or the other, and that categorization depends on what group you're in. Uh, th- this idea is... It's part of an ideology that has taken hold, taken root, flourished, unfortunately, uh, in our contemporary intellectual culture and plays a very significant role, I very much regret to say, in academic life. So if you want to know where students are getting these ideas, they're getting them from universities. They're getting from university professors. They're getting it from university administrators. They're getting it from uh, DEI uh, offices and DEI bureaucracies that um, uh, reflect uh, these ideological misunderstandings, in my view, misunderstandings, some would say understandings uh, and and commitments. Um, now, they also, of course, are communicated on social media. They're in high schools. Uh, they're even in middle, middle schools. For all I know at this point, they may be in elementary schools. But even to the extent that they are in social media and elementary schools and high schools, uh, where's the source? in the universities. And this is what makes the reform of the universities so urgent. Uh, you know, we need to we need to depoliticize our universities and 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 re- restore them to their original justifying, defining, constituting mission of being truth-seeking institutions. Professor, I, I guess my my question is: Is this new to some degree, or I mean, is this a new? I mean, obviously, you know, Bill Buckley wrote in *God and Man* at Yale of kind of the left wing orthodoxy that he encountered at Yale. You, you have been in academia, not quite when Bill Buckley was uh, writing *God and Man* at Yale, but but since the eighties, is this a new type of moment in academia, or is it just a continuation of what you've seen? Uh, since you entered Swarthmore uh, as, as a freshman in, in the 1980s? Well, uh, you know, figures like Fanon and Marcuse, and there are many others, I'm just using those as a couple of leading examples. There were figures like uh, Marcuse and Fanon who were influential all the way back into the 60s, obviously. Um, and, and we could even take it deeper. But when I arrived um, at Princeton to begin my academic career right out of graduate school, uh, this was back in the Middle Ages, back in uh, the fall of 1985, so a little more than 39 years ago. When I uh, began, the, the, the Fanon-type 
ideology, the ideology of Marcuse and others, and there are interesting differences between Fanon and Marcuse. Marcuse, I'm, I'm, I'm just using them as members of a broad category. Uh, but that ideology was present, but it was not dominant. Um, in those days, when I was a young scholar, the dominant position on campus, the dominant ideological position on campus is what I now refer to as the old school liberalism. And it was the old school liberals who uh, set the terms basically of discussion uh, on the campus. And these were people who, although they were McGovern voters in the 72 uh, uh, election and they were sworn enemies of Ronald Reagan and the conservative movement and so forth, they really did believe in things like free speech. And the fact that I was hired and I was out of the closet as a dissenter from the liberal orthodoxy from the moment I uh, first appeared on the Princeton campus to, to be interviewed for my position, the fact that they hired me reveals that they were open to a diversity of viewpoints. They, they thought it was fine, indeed good, for students to be exposed to ideas that were different from theirs. Uh, we did not have an ideological monoculture or anything approaching an ideological monoculture when the old liberals were in charge. They were dominant. Their ideology was dominant, but it wasn't a monoculture. That, I think, Jamie, is what has changed. It's become more and more like closer and closer to being a monoculture. Now, there are still dissenters like me uh, in, in the academy, but what's remarkable, and I think the thing I would have been least able to predict back in the mid-1980s, is that the old school liberals are now almost gone. They were in charge. They were in control. These places were their places. These institutions were their institutions. Now they are rare as hen's teeth. You can't find them around. They are aging out. Uh, they're retiring or dying. Uh, and they're certainly not being replaced by new versions of the old liberals. That, uh, that ideology now seems archaic. If these institutions are now um, becoming dominated by uh, a, a kind of illiberal type professors and administrators, how does one fight back against it and turn these institutions back into what they were? Is is isn't the isn't isn't it already too far along? If you you're, you're you know dominated by a, a group uh, of leaders who who don't really want to have uh, open debate. Well, what I would propose is, I don't know, let's, let's try to come up with a label for it. Uh, let's call it a long march through the institutions. Uh, so what I would like to do is um, build infrastructure where you can, oases of intellectual excellence within existing institutions, especially elite institutions, because other institutions in our country follow the lead of elite institutions. Academic people will tell you that they're independent thinkers and they're, 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 they're certainly not snobs and uh, uh, you know they believe in uh, uh, egalitarianism and equality and so forth. But if you want to change what happens at Kansas Wesleyan or uh, the University of, uh, of Wyoming, change what happens at Yale or Stanford uh, or MIT, uh, there will be a very swift trickle-down Effect. So I think uh, we should work wherever we can, but certainly when we can in the elite institutions to build infrastructure, what, what uh, I'm following Eric Cohen and calling them uh, oases of excellence, um, that um, uh, will exemplify, embody the ideals that were and should be the guiding ideals of academic life, genuine truth-seeking, where 
a range of viewpoints is represented where students really aren't told what to think, but are rather taught how to think, empowered to think more deeply, more critically, and for themselves. Real education, deep education, uh, uh, what the Greeks called paideia, uh, not just communicating information or uh, specific skill sets, but actually teaching students to wrestle with the deep questions and their implications, uh, confronting and countering and engaging the best that has been thought and said throughout history uh, on these uh, on these issues. I think we can do that. I think donor money can be uh, effectively marshaled to do that in many institutions. Not all. There are some that are just so resistant, they're not going to let you in the door. Well, you know, there's nothing you can do about that. But there are plenty of institutions where you can build programs like the program at Princeton that I founded and lead, the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, now in our 23rd year and flourishing um, and providing on our campus exactly the model that I, that I, that I just described, genuine, deep education, uh, education that does not degenerate into indoctrination. Uh, and there are other um, institutions and uh, programs and uh, institutes uh, here at Princeton and around the country, many of them modeled on the Madison program, that do the same thing. And not just in our particular area of civic education, constitutional law and political thought, but in other areas as well. The program in Human Flourishing, led by Tyler Vanderweel at Harvard. Uh, the um, program on markets and economics led by Jose, uh, uh, sorry, uh, Jesus uh, uh, Fernandez Villaverde in uh, uh, the University of Pennsylvania, of all places. Uh, the program in moral philosophy led by Candace Vogler at the University of Chicago. And I'm also excited, Jamie, about state institutions, institutions now being built at places like Arizona State University, their excellent school of civic and economic thought and leadership. Uh, the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, its great new program. Uh, on American civics. Uh, there's a, a terrific one at the University of Texas, the Civitas uh, Institute, the Public Discourse Institute at the University of, um, of uh, North Carolina, the wonderful Hamilton Center at the University of Florida, the flagship university down there. But Professor, if, if, if I may, what, what makes you optimistic if these campuses are increasingly being taken over by illiberal leaders uh, that your program, the Madison program, or the Hoover Institution at Stanford, will will not be tried to be pushed off campus or dismantled. I mean, if if it becomes, uh, you know, uh, just a a a standard view on these campuses that debate, there should be no debate on certain issues. And these these institutions have debate on these issues, or have people advocating a side of these issues that has decided to be, uh, you know, not allowed verboten. Uh, what what makes you confident or optimistic that this won't ultimately lead to the destruction of these institutions, these positive institutions on this campus? Of course, this we're talking here about human life, human condition, the human condition. So I can't give you any guarantee, Jamie. Um, on the other hand, we've been at this for twenty three years at Princeton in the Madison program. We're bigger and stronger and more influential on our campus and off campus than ever. There's a tremendous amount of student interest in our work and our courses. Um, we're offering a course this uh, this spring in statesmanship, um, and it's got over 250 students uh, enrolled in it. And Princeton's a small university. We're really a liberal arts college pretending to be a big uh, university. 250 students enrolled in a course is huge uh, at Princeton. 
and and that's for our course on on statesmanship. And they're not going to be getting woke ideology in that course. Believe me, they're going to get be getting a serious education. They're going to be reading the best that has been thought and said. They're going to be studying Cicero and and George Washington and Abraham Lincoln. Uh, uh, Frederick Douglass, figures like this. This is the real thing. This is real education. No fooling around. Um, so my experience is that you can have an enormous impact on a campus and that the student interest is there when it's offered, but you need a core. This is the thing. You need a core of faculty that uh, isn't intimidated, doesn't practice self-censorship, speaks up loud and clear, that models for our students what we want our students to be. And what is that? Determined truth seekers and courageous truth speakers. That's the goal. Determined truth seekers and courageous truth speakers. And students will follow the lead when they see professors exemplifying those virtues. But if you don't have them, then what you're going to get from the students is either conformism or self-censorship. What do you make of, uh, and again, referencing again, Bill Buckley's God and Man at Yale, his solution to the issue at the time was the trustees to step in and uh, kind of uh, do away with uh, what he thought was not the type of education that Yale should be giving. Uh, do you believe that is uh, the solution to this problem, or, or would you be opposed to the trustees stepping in and kind of mandating their own worldview or the or, or the own, own view of what education should be? I think trustees have a role to play and should play that role in the reform of higher education. Same with regents and the state universities. Uh, I think they have largely abdicated their responsibility uh, in most cases, most universities uh, over the years. Um, but um, place not thy trust in princes, as the as the Bible says. Uh, the trustees are the princes, and they're not going to save us. Uh, even if they would step up to the plate and and do the work and play the role that they they should play. That'll only be a small part of the solution. You can't outsource this one to the trustees. It's going to take faculty. It's going to take alumni and other donors working together, finding opportunities. They won't be everywhere, Jamie. Let me let me again emphasize that. There will be some universities that, that are just not going to let you in the door, but there are going to be a lot of universities where you can build infrastructure, and that infrastructure is going to make a huge difference on the campus. It's going to make that campus different from, let's say, I don't know, Oberlin. Uh, and it's going to make a huge difference in the lives of the students. And it's going to produce students who really are determined truth seekers and courageous truth speakers and lifelong learners. And that's really, as I say, the goal. One of the the big voices, big donors uh, who is trying to uh, uh, ch- change things, I don't, I don't know what your view is for the better or worse uh, uh, since October 7th is Bill Ackman. And I was curious what your thought as someone who uh, is a, a big supporter of free speech, whether this is in bounds of one of the things that he has been doing, which is that I guess CEOs and uh, law firms have asked uh, him whether there's a compilation of people that signed what uh, many view as pr- pr- effectively pro-Hamas petitions on various campus to kind of uh, make them uh, students person, persona non grata if they make applications to Goldman Sachs or some of the major law firms. Do, do, is that something that you think is within bounds, even as someone who is a supporter of free speech? I think it's an imprudent precedent. Uh, no, I think Mr. Ackman should do with his money as he sees fit. Uh, and uh, he certainly seems like a person whose uh, intentions are wonderful. 
and who has done a great job at exposing some of the really bad stuff that's going on campus. So I, this is not a criti- criticism of Mr. Hackman, but uh, there's a there's a danger because the left will pick up on this, and the next thing you know, there will be comprehensive efforts uh, to blackball from future employment evangelical Christian students or devout Catholic students, Orthodox Jewish students, people who uh, made uh, uh, statements or signed petitions that were, say, pro-life or that uh, uh, stood up for traditional marriage and sexual morality or against the idea, uh, the ideas of transgender ideology and things like that. And, you know, you'll have movements on the left and, and these these movements have a lot of influence in corporate America. Woke capital is a real thing. They got a lot of influence in law firms. Uh, we know that from the experience of Paul Clement at two uh, law firms, the great Supreme Court litigator, Paul Clement, who has left two law firms, been pushed out essentially uh, because of his advocacy of causes that were unpopular on the left. The left will figure this out. They will weaponize it and they will use it against honorable students who have conservative, especially socially conservative viewpoints who dissent publicly from woke orthodoxies on campus. So I don't think this is a good road to go down. I, I think you're you're probably going to be handing a dagger to your enemies if you do this. It, it'll seem like a good idea at the beginning. It'll turn out to be a bad idea. Generally, Jamie, I think that the strategy should be one of build, don't ban. We don't need to ban the bad stuff. This is, I think, what Buckley, Buckley was tempted to think back when he published God and Man and Yale. Trustees should come in and ban the bad stuff on campus. Whether that was possible then and we just missed the opportunity or not, it's not possible today, and it's not a good strategy. Um, we should worry less about banning the bad stuff and more about building good stuff. If you build good stuff, believe me, it will prevail. Students can sniff out indoctrination when they've got an alternative, and they will go to the alternative. Another issue that has arose since the uh, hearing earlier this month of the of the college president's uh, was a, I guess, a scandal that's brewing at Harvard with the, the president of Harvard, Cla- Claudine Gay. I wonder if you had any thoughts on the on the plagiarism scandal and allegations. Whether you've looked at them and what uh, you think they're uh, what what they're accusing her of are as serious uh, as uh, some suggest. Uh, I just in the last couple of days have had a chance to uh, look at them in a serious way. I, I haven't done a comprehensive review, but I, but I've looked at a lot of the material. It's now become available publicly, and it looks awfully bad to me. I have to say, um, here's the principle that I think Harvard and every other institution really has no choice but in the end to observe, and that is, you cannot permit faculty members uh, to get away with things that you would suspend or expel students for doing. That's just a general principle that you're, you're, you're not, there's no way out of that in the end. You can put it off for a while, but those double standards are just not tenable. That is treating the standards applying to students uh, more rigorously and standards that apply to faculty in a lax way. So that's the standard. Now, if we look at what I've been looking at the past few days from um, President Gay's writings and then comparing them with the sources that she uh, obviously relied on, sometimes without quotation marks, sometimes without attribution, um, it looks really bad because it seems clear as day to me that if a student were caught doing 
what she has done, that student would be at a minimum subject to serious disciplinary action and likely suspended for a semester or a year. Uh, and in very egregious cases, perhaps expelled. So it, it's a bad situation. And, I, and I'm very sorry, I say this with absolutely no glee. Um, I, I, I'm sad that, that President Gay is in this position. I don't know her personally. I, don't, I certainly don't have anything against her. Um, but she did what she did. And I think the situation is very grave for her. Uh, let me ask you one last question on the campuses uh, and what's going on now. Uh, would you advise a parent uh, of a student who could get into an elite university to send them to an elite university given what's going on uh, on college campuses? Here, I have to sound like one of those university presidents, I'm afraid, Jamie, and say, depends on the context. <laughs> and it does indeed, uh, in, two, in two senses. First, I need to know which university or college. Um, if it's a university or college where there is no uh, dissent, there's no resistance, uh, there uh, are no professors who are not um, standing up against the woke orthodoxy. If it's going to be a place where the student is just indoctrinated, never hears a different point of view, never has an opportunity to study with a professor who thinks differently or take classes where he's exposed to material uh, that challenges the dominant orthodoxy, well, why would you send a student there? Because you, you you like the name Oberlin, sorry to be picking on Oberlin, you like the name Oberlin as a sticker on the back windshield of your Beamer? It's not worth it. Believe me, <laughs> your kid's soul is a lot more important than that. So yeah, I mean, if, if it's that kind of place, don't send your kid there. But there are other places where the woke orthodoxy is pretty powerful, but where there's dissent and resistance and faculty members who will expose students to criticism of woke orthodoxies and where students will have an opportunity genuinely to encounter the best that has been thought and said. Now, those institutions should be on the table. But here's the second sense of context that I have in mind. So you need to know what universities we're talking about here because they're not all alike. Even the elite universities are not all alike. There are some places that don't have significant resistance and dissent. There are others that do. Now, the second sense in which I mean referring to context here is you need to know your child. Is your child the kind who's a conformist? Is your child the kind that's going to just go along with whatever the dominant orthodoxy is? Maybe perhaps your kid's a pleaser and just likes to fit in and likes to be accepted. And, you know, it's just is, is going to go along with whatever the dominant view is on campus. Well, in that case, please send your kid to Hillsdale or Franciscan University of Steubenville, or University of Dallas, or someplace where he'll get an education despite himself. You don't want to send that kid even to a place that's got significant dissent and, and faculty members who will challenge those dominant orthodoxies, because your kid's likely to fall into that group of, of, of students that'll just shun um, um, dissenting professors and you know think that it, it, it's not acceptable to study with them or take their, uh, uh, their classes. Now, on the other hand, if you got a kid who's, you know, serious about learning and, um, you know, doesn't always just go along in order to fit in, who, who thinks sometimes being accepted is not the ultimate thing in the world that, you know, thinking for yourself really is important. If you've, if you brought your kid up that way or you're, or you're blessed to have a kid like that, send them to me, 
We'll take great care of that kid. That kid's going to hear a lot of woke nonsense, and, and including in some of his classes. But he's going to hear that nonsense challenged in other classes. And that kid will resonate. And, and at the end of the day, I'll tell you what that kid's going to be. Like I said before, that kid's going to be a determined truth seeker and a courageous truth speaker and a lifelong learner. Uh, Professor, if, if you permit me, just a, a few uh, kind of questions about the broader political moment. Uh, and I think they were epitomized uh, for you, in a sense, from two tweets that came right after each other uh, on your Twitter. Uh, one uh, was lamenting uh, President Biden's position on, on abortion and unborn babies. The other was lamenting uh, Donald Trump's uh, uh, short-circuiting, uh, uh, just kind of general uh, commentary and the way he speaks. Um, how does how does Professor Robbie George navigate uh, a moment where he doesn't seem to have faith in either likely candidate for the for for the presidential nomination? How does Professor Robbie George vote when he gets to the ballot box uh, when he has two candidates he seems uh, to not very much like to to put it mildly? Yeah, uh, it's a very bad situation as it was in 2016, as it was in 2020. At least if you're a person who believes as as I do. Uh, in 2016 and again in 2020, at least in my humble opinion, uh, neither of the major parties put up a candidate that met the threshold of meriting our support. Neither was fit to be president of the United States. Uh, and in all of those cases, Mr. Trump and uh, Mrs. Clinton in 2016, Mr. Trump again and Mr. Biden in 2020, I think the problems with the, the deep, deep problems with the candidates were fundamentally problems of character, of moral character. Uh, I'm old school. I believe that that virtue in our leaders really matters, that character matters in our leaders. It's not just do they have the right positions about this or that or the other thing. Positions are important. Policy is important. But gosh, you know, you need character. In the end, that really matters. It's a dangerous, dangerous, dangerous world, and character really matters in our in our leaders. And uh, our major parties have put up candidates of poor character uh, in these in these two elections. And so, in 2016, I couldn't vote for either of the major party candidates. I wrote in the name of a of a somewhat obscure senator from Nebraska named Ben Sass. Ben Sass, who happens also to be a friend of mine and is certainly no longer obscure. Um, President of the University of Florida. Now he's left the Senate. Uh, and then in, in 2020, I cast, I guess, what can only be called a protest vote. I wrote in the name of a legislator, uh, African-American Democrat legislator from um, Tennessee, uh, who had been essentially expelled from the Democratic Party because of his pro-life um, commitments and votes in the Tennessee uh, state legislature. And then the party ran a candidate against him in the primary who who defeated him, and I wrote in that man's name as a tribute to him uh, and his independence of mind uh, because of my dissatisfaction with both uh, both Trump and and uh, and and Biden. And it looks like we're heading for Trump and Biden again. I myself uh, many months ago endorsed Governor DeSantis, who I think would be, be a wonderful president. Um, I I cannot explain to you, Jamie, why Governor DeSantis has not caught fire. Uh, I would have expe- I did expect him to to actually take down Mr. Trump in the primaries because I thought, gosh, here's a governor who won by a whisper in his first election. Four years later, wins in a landslide against a credible opponent who had been governor himself. Um, sixty four, almost sixty forty, turned a purple state bright red 
had great successes in policy as well as in politics. Um, Mr. Trump's record electorally was was not good. The candidates, most prominent candidates he were supporting, he supported were losers uh, in 2018 and uh, 2020, and then again in, in 2022. So uh, I I really thought DeSantis was going to um, take the lead, and and obviously he hasn't done that. The the Democrats have helped Trump enormously with their lawfare campaign against him. I mean, each indictment or you know, other big public act against him has simply elevated his standing among Republican primary uh, voters. This may be in part by design because they think that Trump is going to be the easiest candidate for the Democrats to beat. So they're, they're wanting to help him. If, if that is their view, I, I wish someone would remind them of 2016 when that was exactly their view. And they really did help uh, Trump to get the Republican nomination because they thought that they could beat him. Hillary Clinton would easily beat him. And He'd never be president of the United States. And how well did that work out for them? I, I was just going to, when you mentioned the indictments, uh, do, do you think, do you find any of them have merit or do you think in total that uh, they all are spurious? Uh, I haven't uh, examined all of them uh, in detail. There are certainly some violations. There's no question about that. For example, in the Public Records Act and so forth. The, the trouble is it just looks like the prosecution is selective, that he's being prosecuted in at least some of these cases for things that while they are technically uh, offenses, uh, other people have not been uh, prosecuted for. And the record of the Democrats going after Trump, going all the way back to the uh, Steele dossier fraud and the uh, Russian collusion uh, business and all that, the record has just been really, really, really bad. Um, so, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what the Democrats are thinking here. Uh, it, 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 maybe it's very simple. Maybe it's just get them any way you can. Uh, it's certainly good for a Democrat politically to, to issue an indictment of Trump if you're, if you're a prosecutor or something like that. But, um, I don't think it in total is doing the country any good. Uh, I think the way to beat Trump is at the ballot box and I'd love to see him defeated in the Republican party. That's the, that, that at the end of the day is the way that would actually help the country. And help the country to heal. If if we defeated Trump, the, trying to keep him off the ballot, as with the recent Colorado Supreme Court decision and so forth, those may look like smart short term strategies, but they are very bad in the long in the long term. They're just going to feed the idea that Trump is a victim. Um, they're going to tr- feed the idea that Trump has been treated unfairly. Which, to some extent, he certainly has been. You know, as, as, as strongly as I oppose him, I have to admit he has been treated unfairly in many ways. Um, and and it just gins up his base of support and further alienates his supporters who are large in number, further alienates them from the institutions of our country. I wasn't going to go here, but let me just ask you then, I mean, how, how do you view how he handled January 6th? It, you know, does it rise to a level of uh, criminality in your view. Um, one, one of the interesting aspects, uh, which is obviously tangential to some of the January six cases, which is the Colorado, uh, uh, decision that just came up was, you know, kind of masterminded in some ways by, uh, judge Lutig, who's probably someone that, uh, you know, you are familiar with as a, a longtime, uh, writer center jurist. Um, uh, but I guess in total, I, I guess there is a view that what happened on January six was so, uh, uh, 
criminal in a sense, that it rose to the level of insurrection, tried to overthrow the government, that some of these cases do have merit, maybe as opposed to some of the New York cases that go after um, you know, his financing and what he may have paid Stormy Daniels and how he paid Stormy yeah, Daniels. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So I, I guess just in total, the, the, the questions on January 6th, the, the, the cases coming after him for those, um, how, 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 how do you view those? I think President Trump behaved very, very irresponsibly. But I don't see the case. I don't see the evidence that he behaved criminally. Um, if you if you apply what I think uh, the established, uh, what most legal scholars and lawyers and jurists would think are the established um, uh, legal principles here, I think the judgment would have to be this was extremely irresponsible behavior in a president, uh, but not criminal. Let me end with this final question. Uh, there's another candidate running for president who happens to be a friend of yours, and his name is Cornell West. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I was wondering uh, wh- what your thoughts of of his campaign are. Could you ever imagine uh, pulling a uh, the, the ballot for him, uh, voting for him in, in an election? And 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 what do you make of him generally? Well, Cornell's a dear friend of mine. Uh, we go back many years together. We taught together uh, several times at at Princeton. We've gone around the country uh, together doing programs on civil discourse and on other uh, topics. We, we fundamentally disagree uh, politically. We, we have some shared uh, values, of course, um, uh, including our beliefs in the importance of free speech on campus and off campus, uh, the importance of education not deteriorating or, or, or degenerating into indoctrination. And believe me, having taught with Cornell, having been on a faculty with him, he's as good as his word on that stuff. He's been a very powerful ally of mine on free speech issues. And in the classroom, he does not indoctrinate his students. Uh, he challenges them in the way that I challenge them. That's what made us such a good pair, what made it so easy for us to work together uh, in classroom, uh, classroom teaching. Um, he also says what he believes is true, even when it's going to alienate his own side. And he just did that uh, day before yesterday by criticizing the Colorado uh, Supreme Court decision. You know, obviously, he's extremely hostile to Trump. He calls Trump, uh, if I remember the phrase, a gangster and a neo-fascist. But he criticized the Colorado court for taking the democratically constituted citizenry's right to elect the candidate of their choice away from them without a very good constitutional basis for their, uh, for their argument. Well, you know, I admire that. I admire a person who speaks his mind, uh, says what he thinks, um, is honest with the public. Even if, as as in this case, you know, with Cornell, you know, we disagree politically about so many of the most basic policy uh, issues: Israel and Palestine, abortion and the right to to life, marriage and sexual uh, uh, morality, and you know, a range of other things. Professor, thank you for joining the Dispatch Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure, Jamie. Thank you. Uh-huh.